0: This is The East TraumaCast, Cast.
1: with your moderators, Feroz Madback, University
0: of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City,
1: Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
2: This program brought to you by
1: the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. I have the opportunity to sit here with our 31st EAST president, Bruce Crooks, who has just finished up his year of presidency. Bruce, thanks so much for taking a minute to talk with me.
3: My pleasure, Carrie. Thanks for having me.
1: So EAST is known as the Young Surgeon Society, and I was wondering if you could walk us through your EAST experience, from when you joined to how you became president.
3: So I first became interested in EAST when I was a resident, and I went to my first meeting uh, during my fourth year of surgical residency when I thought I wanted to do trauma. And then I got heavily, more heavily involved when I was a fellow at uh, the Ryder Trauma Center, and I did some research um, from which I won the Alexander Paper Competition and received uh, the research scholarship. I then progressed up and took my first job at the University of Vermont, and while I was there, uh, then-President Mike Rotundo called me up and said, I want to put you on the Rural Trauma Committee. And I said, yes, sir, my, my pleasure, and... Uh, that's where it all started Um, and then a couple years later Ernie Block called me up and said listen I'd like to make you the committee chair for information technology and I progressed from there so it's been a lot of fun it's been a wild ride
1: (laughs) what do you think makes you the kind of East member that the senior leadership is calling and asking you to volunteer
3: so it all starts with your dedication to the organization first and foremost and secondly Um, a lot of it was based upon uh, work products. So it's, I took on tasks, I completed tasks, and put forth my ideas and uh, put in a fair amount of work to do this. And we we like to identify members who are going to be active, who are participants, and who have the out-of-box ideas and deliver on what they're thinking. The ideas don't always have to work. And uh, and Mm -hmm. ask anybody in this organization, I've had a bunch that have failed and flamed out miserably, (laughs) Um, which was fine. East is an organization that accepts failure and innovative thinking. But we look for people who are active participants who um, um, deliver on their promises.
1: And how has your presidency been?
3: Oh, it's been awesome. It's been a lot of fun. The, um, what you realize is the amount of work that people are doing is unbelievable. And the ideas that are out there, there are some wild ideas and things I never would have thought of, um, and modifying old ways of thinking. It's just It's been a phenomenal experience for me to see everything that the organization has done. And clearly, I'm not doing everything. It's the work of the members and the committee chairs and the, all of the guys who are leading, but it is phenomenal. The, the way this organization is growing and building and the product that we're putting together is unbelievable. It's been a, a blast. What is your hope for the future of EAST? I think, I think number one, we um, that we continue to grow, but number two, we continue to support the mission of the young trauma surgeon, developing their leadership, developing their, um, providing them with education, a good framework for their research, but also developing their careers. For me, that was one of the biggest things I took away from this organization. I, I would be, um, not even close to having any modicum of success. I've had without the leadership workshop that I participate in, the scholarship I receive, the opportunities to learn and develop a leadership style, the mentorship I've gotten from people within this organization have helped me tremendously. I really want us to continue that legacy to develop the young the young surgeons and find the leaders of tomorrow. And I think the other thing that I want us always to be is um, to be a little bit of a gadfly, to be the young inspiring organization that's thinking differently from the um, ways that senior leadership tend to think about things. I think the young young group has very dynamic ideas that need to be explored. They need to have a venue to explore those ideas. And I want East to continue to do that. Bruce, thank you so much for your work this year. It's been really nice talking to you and good luck. The pleasure's been absolutely mine. And I'll put in a pitch, the podcasts are amazing. (laughs) Sign up, listen,
1: they're fantastic. Great. From our biggest supporter by far, Bruce Crooks, thank you very much. (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Christopher Bell, a third-year resident from Iowa Methodist Medical Center. He just finished presenting his paper, Do All Head-Injured Patients on antiplatelet Drugs Really Need Platelets? Christopher, thank you so much for talking to me. Would you give us a summary of your uh, research and what you found?
4: So uh, we took a retrospective look at our trauma guidelines for the reversal of antiplatelet medications in the setting of traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. Um, About two years of retrospective data that we looked back at, um, we were able to minimize or reduce the number of platelet transfusions given to patients. without any harm to the patients. Um, this resulted in a significant reduction in the number of platelet transfusions and a significant decrease in the amount of uh, platelet transfusion associated healthcare costs.
1: Did it make any difference in your platelet uh, transfusion patients what kind of antiplatelet therapy they were on?
4: The the, the type of antiplatelet therapy that they were on, um, it mattered in, in how we tested the patient. We, they either got a, a P2Y12 uh, platelet reactivity test or an aspirin uh, platelet reactivity test. Um, However, if they were therapeutic on either of those tests, that did not make a difference on whether or not they received platelet transfusion. Those patients who were therapeutic on antiplatelets received platelet transfusion for their intracranial hemorrhage.
1: So everybody at your institution who demonstrates platelet inhibition on an antiplatelet therapy got transfused. That was your previous protocol. Is that correct? Am I understanding it?
4: Correct. That's that's how it wa- how how it used to be done. Everybody who was, uh, everybody who was thought to be taking in and put the medications or taking them, um, would have been transfused two units of platelets for e- every time they were found to have a traumatic intracranial
1: hemorrhage. Now that's that's pretty typical at most trauma centers. You said that's how it used to be done. How do you do it now?
4: So now we test them using the platelet reactivity test, uh, either an aspirin uh, platelet reactivity test or a. Uh, P2Y12 platelet reactivity test, and if those are inhibited, then we give them one unit of platelets. We give them ddAVP, and then we recheck their platelet reactivity testing. If they're still found to be inhibited after that first round of treatment, then we will test. Then we will uh, institute that protocol over again, another round of platelets and another round of ddAVP, um, and so so on and so forth.
1: And what I found interesting is that you now are using laboratory data to determine inhibition. Those patients get transfused. Now, looking back at the two different protocols you had at your institution, you've mentioned there's a decrease in the amount of platelets transfused, but was there any change in the clinical outcomes for your patients? So
4: we weren't able, we didn't pull data um, from previous head-injured patients who were on the old, quote-unquote, old protocol. So we weren't able to look at outcomes, you know, in the past. Um, However, when comparing the patients who received platelet transfusion versus not received platelet transfusion. And at the same time, platelets or p- patients who had inhibited, inhibited platelets versus non-inhibited platelets, they had essentially the same outcomes. So while we weren't able to look back at a control group or uh, older data, um, the, the groups that we had over the two-year time period did the same, whether they were treated with platelets or not.
1: Well, it's very interesting research. Thank you very much for taking some time with me. Mm-hmm.
4: Thank you very much.
1: I'm here with Morgan Barron, who is a third-year resident at Madigan Army Medical Center. Morgan has already completed his research year. Part of his research he presented today called Mobile Forward-Looking Infrared Technology Allows Rapid Assessment of Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta in Hemorrhage and in Blackout Conditions. Morgan, that's a very, very long title. Thank you for taking <laughs> some time to talk to me. Could you uh, summarize and, and explain what exactly it is that you've been doing?
5: Absolutely. Yeah, so we, our group has been looking at thermal imaging and... Uh, The management of um, hemorrhage and how you know what other hemostatic devices we can utilize and what this specifically looked at is using thermal imaging to assess the adequacy of roboa catheter placement our our goal is that you know we have roboa that's available and it's moving towards being placed in the far forward and austere environments Uh, but there's no good ways to confirm its placement because in a lot of these environments we don't have a lot of the devices and uh technology and imaging that we have in the hospital to assess it. And so what we did is we took um, 10 swine, randomized them into hemorrhage and non-hemorrhage groups, and then subjected them to a bunch of series of, um, of thermal imaging um, with RoboA catheters that were inflated. And so what we, what we found was is that Um, Over uh, that period of time, we looked at 30 minutes, there was a significant decrease in um, objective temperature measurements using the thermal imaging cameras. Um, They were talking about six to eight degrees uh, of temperature change over that period of time. What we then uh, did is we took all of the images that we, we had found are from the study, and we we subjected them to a bunch of um, blinded evaluators. These were 62 individuals. All of them had medical training. They were medical students to attending physicians. Um, but nobody had ever really experienced thermal imaging. And so we gave them all a familiarization to the technology, made sure everybody was brushed up on their, you know, what Reboa was and how it worked. Um, and then, you know, you told them how they would use thermal imaging to assess for Reboa adequacy. And what we found was pretty striking. We found that at our two earliest time points that we measured in the study, the five and ten minute time points, that there was extremely high rates of accuracy. We're talking in the upper mid-90s uh, percentage of people getting correct which, Uh, ROBOA, you know, which, whether the balloon was inflated, deflated, um, and correctly identifying that status. Uh, So what we, you know, we kind of concluded from the study was that um, you can easily identify uh, and a blinded observer can easily identify. Um, whether the roboa is uh, properly placed um, and inflated providing good distal occlusion um, and that we also have good um, objective data that you can monitor uh, the roboa catheter uh, in an ongoing fashion.
1: That was a lovely uh, summary and and I wish the our Traumacast audience could have seen the presentation because you have some very very cool pictures. The the pig's prior to balloon occlusion were bright red, pinks, and whites. And then as the pictures progressed uh, in a time-lapse form from five minutes to 10 all the way up to 30 minutes, you could see the extremities turning to a more green color and the central core temperature turning to like a darker pink um, heading towards yellow. So what we had summarized for us is the idea would be someone is injured, gets a roboa balloon placed, inflated, and then they're being rapidly transported from battlefield to a definitive care. And along the way, your suggestion would be that um, whoever's caring for the patient and it's multiple people could then use infrared technology to confirm that the balloon is still in place and is still causing occlusion based on distal extremity, you know, decrease in thermal energy. Is that correct?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's exactly what we would expect to see. And if you, and if somebody was monitoring and saw maybe that the thermal temperature was actually looking warmer, uh, may suggest that there's some distal, uh, flow occurring in the, in that patient, um, and indicating that there's, you know, it may not be adequate anymore.
1: Why couldn't um, the first responders or the people who are doing transport just check a pulse?
5: I I mean, they certainly, and I think that they should. Um, But in realistically, in these settings, there's just a lot of movement. There're blackout conditions. It's hard to find, uh, you know, find the patient, you know, find the patient's extremities, get everything um, that you need to get a pulse. It can be very difficult to assess. And the next logical thought is you, you use a Doppler or something like that. And again, same kind of things apply in certain situations that may not be enough because you may not be able to hear well enough if you're on a helicopter transport um, or you know whatever battlefield um, you know sounds and things like that. It could you know all of the the elements of that far forward environment uh, could make it very difficult to assess with our standard uh, standard means.
1: I think it's similar to why we use chest X-rays in the trauma bay and not just a stethoscope.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Very,
1: very good. Great, Morgan. Well, thank you again for your service. Thank you for the research that you're doing and for improving the care on the battlefield and hope you enjoy the rest of the meeting.
5: Hey, perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: I'm here with Cosette Kale, who is a first-year resident at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. She just finished presenting her uh, data that she worked on when she was a medical student at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Title of her presentation is Blood Product Age Versus Mortality. The results from the pragmatic, randomized, optimal platelet and plasma ratio, the proper trial. Cosette, thank you so much for taking a moment to talk to me today. Could you summarize your data?
6: Sure, thank you so much for having me. Um, We know that hemorrhage is a leading cause of preventable death after trauma but we also know that early hemorrhage control and rapid transfusion of blood products can significantly decrease mortality. Unfortunately, we know that There are storage lesions associated with um, not only red blood cells, which have been most rigorously studied, but also plasma and platelets. So the purpose of our research was to look at how older red blood cells, plasma, and platelets would affect patient outcomes at 6 hours, 24 hours, and 30 days, predicting that um, these patients receiving the older blood products in comparison to younger blood products um, would have higher rates of mortality.
1: So in reviewing the data from the proper trial, what did you find?
6: So we found that when higher proportions of the older red blood cells um, were given to patients, they had higher rates of mortality at both uh, 6 hours, 24 hours, and 30-day mortality. Um, But we actually found that higher proportions of younger plasma was also associated with six hours, 24 hours, and 30-day mortality. However, um, that association is most likely confounded due to shelf life logistics um, and the way that we end up transfusing people in the trauma bay. We initially use uh, thawed plasma, which can have um, shelf life from one to five days, but unfortunately when you run out of that, you end up having to thaw Um, fresh frozen plasma, which is then demarked with a a day zero. Um, So the patients with the um, largest resuscitation requirements are inevitably transfused with the highest proportions of youngest plasma.
1: And how about platelets? Did you find any impact on mortality?
6: No, actually. We found that um, higher ratios of either older or younger platelets, there there was no difference in mortality at all.
1: So the current system for the Red Cross is that the freshest blood goes to uh, tertiary or, or quaternary level three kind of trauma centers, uh, I should say. And then as it starts to expire, it gets uh, transported over to a level two trauma center. And as it gets closer to expiration, it gets transported to the level one trauma center. This is good from a um, product consumption perspective in that we rarely lose blood product due to expiration. But unfortunately, it also means that at level one trauma centers, where you're more likely to have a massive transfusion, those patients are most likely getting the oldest blood on the market. With your data, would you suggest a a change in the paradigm of how we manage our blood product system?
6: Yeah, I absolutely think that this older mentality of a a first-in-first-out practice of distributing older blood products um, is certainly needs to be reconsidered and potentially changed. I think a lot of organizations including UT Houston is now moving to a last in first out um, where they preferentially distribute the younger blood products to the higher risk patients with massive transfusion.
1: I think it's a very interesting idea. It's, it's not saying that all blood transfusions would need to be changed, but certainly patients getting the massive transfusion, we should really reconsider uh, giving them the freshest blood available.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and while we haven't specifically found a dose effect, I think that um, we need to be looking more at the patients getting massively transfused to really better understand the effects of these storage lesions.
1: Well, that sounds interesting data on the horizon. Thank you so much for your work. It's, it's really impressive. You've done this as a medical student, and, and you're just an intern now with so much more potential uh, for research to come. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here with Viraj Pandit, who is a fourth-year resident at the University of Arizona. He just presented his paper, Continuous Remote Ischemic Conditioning Attenuates Cognitive and Motor Deficits After Moderate Traumatic Brain
7: Injury. Viraj, thank you so much for speaking to me. Could you give us a summary of your data? Thank you for having me. So in our study, we found that this novel modality of remote ischemic conditioning uh, helped improved uh, neurocognitive as well as motor function in a rodent TBI model of moderate brain injury. Uh, this was based on our previous studies and our multiple work in this area of remote ischemic conditioning, which is a novel modality in which You can attach a simple blood pressure cuff and produce ischemia in a remote area such as an extremity and that has been shown to release inflammatory mediators and protection against reperfusion injury in brain, uh, heart, as well as in transplant patients.
1: So uh, to put a tourniquet or a blood pressure cuff on causing ischemia in an extremity improves traumatic brain injury. Walk me through this. How, How do I get from ischemic limb
7: to improved brain function? So in in our rodent TBI model, what we did was a tonic was applied over the femoral artery and an ischemia was induced there. This relates to release of multiple mediators of inflammation and helps to convert an ischemic pathway of brain injury into a protetic pathway and thus helps to uh, improve cognitive as well as uh, neuromotor function in these mice. How did you prove they had better cognitive and motor function? So for, for the neurocognitive function, we use something called a novel object recognition model in which the mice were first acclimatized to an object in their cage and then a novel object, that is a new object, was introduced in the cage. And then the time that the mice spent towards the newer object was calculated as a ratio of that, the time to the new object and over the total time spent with any of those objects. And then the motor function was assessed using what we call a rotor rod test, where the mice were made to move over a rod, and which was moving about four, uh, four oscillations per minute. And their ability to sustain on that uh, rod was measured as the latency to fall. And what did you find? And we found that in our uh, mice, which had the remote ischemic conditioning, they were uh, less likely to uh, fall from the rod. That is, they had improved motor function. And two, they did spend more time towards the newer object, that is, the novel object recognition. So the RIC mice had improved motor as well as neurocognitive function. I think this is really fascinating research. How far away are we
1: from taking the data that you present today and
7: making it applicable uh, in the clinical sense in the trauma bay? I think right now we're still identifying what's, one, the optimal timing when this needs to be performed, how long it needs to be performed, and uh, how uh, what impact would it have in uh, in the patients. What we it's already been proven RIC is being safe as well as effective. So I think uh, we are not that far away where we start doing this in our trauma bay uh, for our moderate to severe TBI patients and seeing the impact. We still need to identify definite markers, how we can identify the the neural, as well as the cognitive and, and motor function in our patient, which is a little more challenging than in these mice. Well, that's, that's really fascinating data. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for having us here. Thank you.
1: I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Hartwell, who is a trauma surgeon at Indiana University. She just finished presenting Rapid Recovery of Protein Debt is Associated with Fewer Complications in the Critically Injured Adult. Uh, Jennifer, thank you for taking some time with me. Sure. Would you take a moment to uh,
8: explain your data? Yes. In summary, we looked at patients who were admitted to the ICU and could uh, not eat on their own and required enteral nutrition. And we looked at the first seven weeks of ICU admission and saw that patients who received adequate protein delivery and uh, caught up to their protein needs by day four did far better in terms of overall complication burden than patients who never closed that protein debt within the first seven days. So we concluded that early
1: closure of the protein debt is essential by day four. And maybe you can help explain some of the basic science. What is protein debt and how do you measure it? So protein debt is basically a
8: simple calculation where we take what the dietitian prescribes based on the um, calculated uh, protein and calories that the patient needs and then subtract out how much the patient actually got. So the number of mLs of tube feeds and the protein that's in those tube feeds and so we calculate how much protein they actually got based on the volume of tube feedings, and compare that to
1: um, what they were supposed to get based on their uh, diet prescription from the dietitian. So four days seems earlier than kind of our usual, if a patient can't be fed, we, we typically wait out about seven days before we initiate TPN. Would your data suggest that maybe we should be starting TPN much sooner than waiting out seven days?
8: So because our study was retrospective, and I think there are some limitations to our study, I'm a little uh, hesitant to say that we should wholly change our practice based on this study, but I think that we have enough evidence to go the next step and do a prospective study to answer that specific question. I think what we did um, provides the
1: impetus to proceed with a prospective study. One of the uh, questions from the audience that launched into kind of a a bit of a different topic off of your paper was starting enteral feeds. When do you start enteral feeds? How long do you hold them before going to the OR? What do you do about residuals? I was wondering if you could um, highlight for our listeners uh, how that conversation went and what your practices are at your hospital. So the question
8: was, Sometimes patients are made NPO for prolonged periods of time or take backs and tube feedings are held when maybe they could um, keep going. And so what we do in our institution now is if if the patient has a protected airway, so if they're intubated and they're going back to the operating room for a non-aerodigestive tract surgery, so wash out of an X-fix or something like that, we allow those tube feedings to keep going until 30 minutes prior to surgery, and then we stop the tube feeds. Um, And... protocol is specific to post-pyloric tube feedings, but I know other institutions that uh, perform the same uh, protocol for gastric feeds. And then, um, so for gastric residual volumes, we have um, changed our threshold from 200 to 500, and in most
1: instances, we are not checking gastric residual volumes at all. We've just abandoned them. Is this only for patients that you're doing post pyloric feeding, or is this for patients that you're also doing gastric feeding? Uh, also for gastric feeding. And how, going back to the NPO before the operating room, how did you get your anesthesiologist to have buy in? So we, uh, in two different
8: ways, we showed them the literature and we showed them protocols from other institutions. In that other anesthesiology groups had signed off on is um, sort of reassurance that other people are doing it, this in the real world and um, anesthesi-
1: anesthesiologists and other institutions are feeling good about it too. Have you had any complications or aspirations interop? No, not that we know of. That's really great to hear. Well, thank you so much for summarizing the data and for explaining protein debt to us. It's really important work, and I, th- I think we're going to be changing the way that we feed our patients as the years go on. This is a, certainly a hot topic. I'm sitting with Alessandra Landman. She's a chief resident at the University of Oklahoma. She just completed presenting at the Engage the Masters session. Alessandra, thank you so much for taking a moment to talk with me. Could you explain to our audience what is the Engage the Masters session?
9: The Engage the Masters session at East is a really great forum where residents and junior attendings can present spectacular cases that they've come across, either in trauma or acute care surgery, and have an opportunity to present their findings, their pictures, and to discuss different techniques and different approaches for complex surgical problems.
1: Tell us a bit about your case and kind of the teasers and where you chose to stop and ask your important questions.
9: I had a really spectacular case of a 13 year old blunt trauma patient who came in with uh, airway injury and I had the opportunity to, to quiz the audience and the panel about how to approach complex repairs and when to consider ECMO in patients that become acutely unstable with airway injuries.
1: So with your airway injury, it was the right main stem bronchus, had an avulsion. Um, Did the panel come to a consensus on how they would have managed the injury, and how did that compare with what you all actually did?
9: The panel had some interesting feedback and insights of approaches that we could have considered beforehand. However, I feel like we mostly came to the same conclusion once we were able to share with them our operative findings and our challenges in the case of this patient.
1: I think this is a really interesting session, and and this is not your first time presenting, is it?
9: No, I actually had the opportunity to present a different pneumonectomy case three years ago as a junior resident, so it's great to be back and to present different challenges in treatment of pneumonectomy in teenagers. And how did you get involved with the Engage the Masters session? I first came across it as a junior resident in the monthly email that comes out from the East Forum and put an abstract together, submitted it, and luckily I got it on at East in 2015, and here I am back with a second case and a different opportunity to present.
1: I presented last year at the same session, and it's a lot of fun. It's really the Monday morning ultimate quarterbacking experience where you present a great case, have experts kind of needle pick it down, and then you get to lead them through the story, and I think it's one of the favorites for all the audiences who come.
9: For the residents out there, you should really take advantage of this. It's a great way to meet people at a meeting, to get a case on, and to learn how to defend your case and present interesting aspects of approaches to complex surgical problems.
1: And we like it in the audience, because not many times do you have to deal with a tracheal bronchial injury. So it's always nice to run through the mental exercise of how do I identify it, what do I do about it, and then what are the complications I need to look for. Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for taking some time with me, and and great job with your presentation.
9: Thank you so much.
1: I'm here with a good friend and mentor of mine, Babak Sarani, who's the Chief of the Trauma Critical Care at George Washington University. I asked uh, Babak to speak with me today to highlight what is the multicenter trial session.
10: Uh, Well, firstly, thank you, as always, uh, for the opportunity to speak. Um, The Multi-Center Trials Committee is a committee within EAST that seeks to uh, facilitate uh, either prospective or retrospective uh, collaboration among centers to have multi-center studies um, on contemporary topics.
1: And so the whole hour was dedicated to just allowing each um, primary site to present what their research is going to be, and, and really for recruitment.
10: Yeah, exactly. The way this works is the investigators uh, submit their proposals to the committee uh, before the meeting. There's a call for proposals. The committee, uh, which I do not serve on, um, reads through these proposals and chooses the ones that probably have the most um, feasibility as well as medical relevance for the question being posed. And then those people are invited uh, to pitch their idea at this session uh, and try to enroll other trauma centers into their study.
1: And I saw uh, one of your uh, uh, research residents, Liz B. Rivas, was able to present your paper, uh, or your research proposal. If you could kind of give us a highlight, an example of what would be a good multicenter trial.
10: Yeah, exactly. So the uh, the uh, research question that we posed uh, is, what is there is there an association between empiric administration of tranexamic acid and subsequent uh, venous or arterial thromboembolic events uh, as the Matters trial showed a somewhat low incidence of uh, DVT-PE following TXA. It was about 2.5%. So if you're going to do a study on this topic, given the low incidence of disease, uh, you need a lot of centers to get some good numbers on board. And so this is where we came in. We pitched the idea of doing a retrospective study uh, for both penetrating or blunt mechanisms, doesn't matter, patients who did or did not receive TXA, and the subsequent DVT-PE, MI, and stroke rates. So our or venous clot Um, the design is such that we will take a look at patients who did receive TXA controlling for all the usual demographic variables injury severity etc and then do a propensity score matched Uh, uh, control arm for patients who had similar demographics, injury severity, but did not receive TXA. And now let's ask the question, what is the rate of arterial venous thrombosis? Uh, Power analysis powered off of the Matters trial suggests that we needed about 830 patients. Uh, Factoring in about a 15 to 20 percent dropout rate, we're going to try to enroll roughly 1,000 patients in the study. And this then shows you the power of the multi-institutional trials committee, the ability to bring multiple trauma centers together to do a study that has 1,000 patients who did or did not receive TXA.
1: So if somebody wasn't at the session or couldn't be at the meeting, they hear this podcast or they want to get involved in multi-institutional trials, how can they find out what trials are available for their institution to join?
10: Super easy. Go to east.org, which is, of course, where you should go no matter what every day when you wake up. (laughs) Um, Navigate your way over to the multi-institutional trials. You can even just put a search function in. Once you're on the page for the multi-institutional trials, you'll see all the various studies that are currently active. And then you literally just click a button and you can put your name in. The society will then serve as the intermediary to notify the investigator that you are interested and the investigator will reach out to you. So it's really as simple as a web-based portal.
1: Oh, that's really nice. Well, thank you so much for explaining that to us, and have a great afternoon. Thank you very much. I just finished the uh, No Suit, No Problems morning session, Fostering Relationships and Building Careers, sponsored by the East Career Development Committee. I'm standing here with Brad Dennis from Vanderbilt University, who is the incoming chair of the Career Development Committee. Brad, thanks so much for taking a moment to talk to me.
11: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Maybe you can explain for our listeners what is this no suit no problem meeting we have?
11: Yeah, th- this is really one of our uh, favorite sessions for, that our committee puts on, and it's uh, it's really it's a networking session. It's an opportunity for young members, um, residents, fellows, anyone really who's attending the meeting to have a chance to sit down in a in a little bit more intimate setting, um, you know, more one on one time with some of the more senior members of East. A chance to talk about a lot of different topics or anything that really sort of interests you. We kind of have it set up in a way where there's um, there's about 27 tables this year um, with different topics. I think we actually uh, have two tables for each topic. So there's about 15 topics, uh, things like uh, how to get involved in EAST, how to find your first job, how to run um, a fellowship program or, or be involved in the, in the educational process of a fellowship program, promotion and tenure, things like that. So it's a, it's a really good opportunity to talk to some of the leaders in trauma um, in, in a little bit more one-on-one setting, make some connections and some, uh, some friendships.
1: And one thing I've noticed uh, this year is that you'll have two tables for one topic, but one of the tables is dedicated to mid-career. So are we taking this session and making it, it's for the, the young surgeons, the medical students, residents, fellows, and we're also trying to appeal to the mid-career surgeons.
11: Yeah, exactly. So as, you know, certainly as EAST grows, we um, we're an organization that's always gonna be dedicated towards young surgeons, but we also have folks who are not just out, just starting out, but are kind of in that middle portion of their career, and we wanna create some um, some opportunities for those people to get some uh, mentoring as well.
1: Well, great, this is one of my favorite sessions. Thanks so much for taking a moment.
11: Yeah, thank you, appreciate it.
1: I'm here with Dr. Raymond Fang, who is a recently retired colonel with the United States Air Force, currently works at Johns Hopkins Bayview. We just finished the session, Case Records of the Joint Trauma System. Dr. Fang, thanks for talking with us. Could you uh, let the audience know what was that session uh, about and what's its purpose?
2: So uh, this session was just uh, sponsored by the Military Committee of EAST, and it was to highlight some recent real uh, life cases that were cared for by EAST members in the deployed theater, uh, trying to highlight some of the challenges they face to take care of trauma in this environment. And some of those cases were
1: Incredible. I think they'd be complex and difficult to manage even with the highest resource level one trauma center here in the states. How is it that the uh, men and women who serve overseas
2: can manage these types of cases with such limited resources? So actually it's quite interesting. A a lot of these deployed theater hospitals are, despite how small and mobile they are, are quite well resourced. Uh, We were lucky to hear four cases by pretty experienced trauma surgeons, uh, trauma trained, trauma interested, trauma practicing uh, surgeons. Um, One of the issues that came up or one of the comments that was made during the case is that trauma requires improvisation and innovation. And uh, they just used those skills and demonstrated how those uh, kind of adaptability uh, was required in this care.
1: And what are some of the lessons that we can take away from that session?
2: So I think uh, number one lesson is that excellent care can be delivered. Um, I think care depends more on the surgeon, their knowledge, uh, rather than necessarily all the tools that we've grown accustomed to at home. Um, I think basic surgical uh, tenants remain valid and that uh, if you're motivated and you care about your patient, you can have a good outcome. Um, I think when you are in the deployed theater, uh, one of the things that you always have to have in your heart is that you know you're doing your best and you're that patient's best chance. And so again, if you rely on your anatomy, your uh, motivation, dedication, and also surgical principles, that patient will have the best outcome possible. Uh, It may not uh, be the perfect outcome because again, these are sometimes horrendous injuries, um, but it'll be the best possible for that patient at the time. Dr. Fang, thank you so much for your service. Congratulations on your recent retirement. So thank you very much. Uh, My wife just says that retirement doesn't seem to be beaches and cocktails. It seems to be just more work, though. (laughs) Yeah, her
1: perception of your job is uh, probably about the same.
2: Yes. All right. Have a good afternoon. Thanks, you too.
1: I'm here with Andrew Bernard from the University of Kentucky. He is our upcoming president. Thank you very much, Andrew, for taking a minute to chat with me.
0: Gary, I appreciate the invitation.
1: Could you go ahead and start with your, what's your EAST story? How did you become a member one day and then kind of progress through and now you're the upcoming president?
0: Well, my start with, uh, with EAST was really uh, applying for and luckily uh, winning one of the EAST research scholarships. I had been active in a laboratory as a research fellow during my residency. I knew I wanted a career in surgical science, and early on, my mentor, who was an EAST member, encouraged me to apply for the EAST Research Scholarship. I was awarded a research scholarship. It was transformative for me in terms of giving me the financial base to buy animals and reagents and antibodies and partially pay my lab tech. I was very productive. I wrote papers, I presented the papers at the meeting, and I think because of that I was recognized as somebody who was using well what the association had given me, and I received a call from Kim Nagy and she invited me to chair the scholarship committee. So I chaired the scholarship committee for three years and just like with my research scholarship, I I tried to make the most of, of my time chairing the scholarship committee. So uh, we revamped some of the application process, tried to be innovative with how the scholarships were allocated or awarded. And uh, because of that, my efforts were recognized by the the board and the leadership at the time. At that point, there was new development, uh, the creation of online education by President Eric Barquist. He knew that I had worked hard on scholarship and he wanted me to have the opportunity to uh, do something else and he let me be the inaugural chair of the uh, online education committee and then I was fortunate to be able to take a program committee and a chair program committee for 3 years which is an incredible experience uh, the program is formed all year long but primarily over a two-day meeting in Chicago in July when we adjudicate all now almost 400 abstracts and all the plenary proposals from all of the creative people in this organization. And in a day and a half, we rough out uh, the the program. That is a very cool experience, how a major meeting like this comes about, and, and it was my great privilege to chair, chair that committee for three years. and um was then fortunate to be uh, nominated as a president-elect so that's it for me
1: well there you go i'm really glad you were the inaugural chair of the online education committee that is the committee that the east trauma cast is part of so your work then kind of led to where we are here um can you give me some highlights on the meetings and things that you've enjoyed these past few days
0: you know th- this association is always changing and that's okay we talk about change being hard and um, change necessary and wonderful, and because this is an association with predominantly young people making it happen, there's going to be change because there are new ideas. So what you see uh, on this year's uh, program and in this year's meeting that's a little bit different are, are some schedule changes. We maintain perennial favorites like the leadership development workshop, now we have the fellows workshop happening regularly you have your old favorites in terms of the no suit, uh, no tie, no problem and uh, the masters, things people have come to appreciate as always being there. Dodgeball when we can be <laughs> in, properly in, insured to have it, we uh, we have it. But but also adding new programming on that is really at the at the prompting of the membership. The membership speaking through the evaluations of the meeting speaking through their representatives on the board speaking through members of the program committee really forms the meeting so i encourage people to to let let us know what they want to see what they have had enough of what they think is uh, maybe starting to get a little tired and what they want to see that's new and innovative this year some scheduling changes in terms of the way we uh, plan things President's address was on Wednesday this year instead of on uh, Thursday or Friday. Uh, being on Wednesday allowed a business meeting to follow immediately. We got some business done early in the meeting so we can all relax and en- enjoy going on after that. So some innovative changes like that. Um, always a little bit different the meeting should be and it should be always responding to what the members want.
1: And speaking of what the members want, what do you see for the future of East during your presidency?
0: Uh, It's going to be an exciting year. It's 31 years old, uh, 32 years old, the association. It's old enough to have legacy, but it's young enough that it's not too set in its ways. It's nimble, and we have the opportunity to make it what we want it to be. Uh, For those who were at the meeting, heard the presidential address, heard a challenge from outgoing President Crooks, look at quality, how we measure quality, maybe not the way uh, CMS measures quality, maybe not even the way TQIP or the COT measures quality, or our HCAPs measure quality. How do we measure quality? How do we, who are running programs, making trauma and emergency surgery programs work in our organizations, what's relevant quality to us. So something we're definitely gonna see in the coming year is the development of a quality committee. And uh, that quality committee is going to identify, define what the opportunities are in quality, the challenges. I think what you're gonna see come out of that committee is gonna be education. You're gonna see some advocacy, I suspect, with respect to um, what what we think are relevant uh, quality endpoints. So quality is gonna be something you're gonna see a lot in the next year. Something that's very, very important to me as an EAST scholarship recipient is the programming that's available because of the development fund. The development fund exists because of the initial establishment of the EAST Foundation. The EAST Foundation was created because as the organization grew, we accrued supplemental cash, if you will. We knew that cash was gonna be important for making special programs happen in the future. So that cash was placed into a foundation. We've transitioned that foundation into the organization as a whole, and we did that to make the operational costs more lean. But the development fund exists to make special programs happen. For example, the East Research Scholarship. It's a $40,000 a year scholarship, and there's no line item in the budget for that. So we make that scholarship happen. We change someone's career every year by making that scholarship award, but we do that out of the development fund. The East Templeton uh, Injury Prevention research scholarship is twelve thousand dollars and we give a huge boost to somebody's career every year by awarding that research scholarship that allows somebody to do what is very difficult research to do injury prevention research by awarding that scholarship there's no line item in the budget for that that comes every year out of development funding so we're at about uh, 1.1 million dollars in that development fund sounds like a lot of money but if we spend that principle then there will eventually be a time when those things would go away so to make those special programs happen we have to make them happen on interest from that development fund and the interest on that 1.1 million is just about enough to fund the east research scholarship and the templeton research scholarship this year we did something really exciting Back in the spring, we held the first research hackathon, brainchild of uh, Jason Smith, Jose Pascual, Rob Winfield, Ben Zarzar, and others who came up with an idea of how can we really provide intensive mentoring to people who want to develop research and research programs? How can we do that in an intensive way, more than what we could even do at the meeting? Well, let's get them together hold them all up in a room for a couple of days, hear what their research ideas are, and just start hacking away at it, uh, using to use a corporate term. And that's what, that's what we did. Uh, Jason and uh, his team brought those folks together in Chicago. They held the meeting at the American College of Surgeons building. Uh, we paid for airfare and hotel to get those people there. We fed them. And over the course of a couple of days, people came with ideas and they left with draft research proposals to whatever funding agency they aspired to fund their research. And and this was was, uh, uh, not one person. This was a whole group of EAST members who had this opportunity. That was career changing for all those people. And we've heard great feedback about that. And the return on investment is going to come for years in terms of of funding and growth for those individuals. Now, how did that happen? There wasn't money in the budget for that. We made money in the budget for that. If we're going to do that in subsequent years, then we need a way to pay for that. To have the $25,000 that we need to make that hackathon happen every year and change six or eight young East members' research careers, we're going to need another approximately half a million dollars in the development fund. If we can raise a half a million dollars over the next few years through corporate donations and, and donations from the members as everybody is you know, able to contribute, um, then the hackathon can become something in perpetuity. We'll always have it and, and we'll always be forming that legacy uh, that, uh, that East is famous for, helping young surgeons develop. So I hope to see growth in the development fund this year in addition to the quality initiative I also want to continue to focus on what we deliver the membership in terms of educational content that is in the form that they want. Uh, Trauma casts, career casts, they come in a format that's convenient for a lot of people. Uh, You can listen to them on your way to work or on your way home or when you're working out. It's a nice way to get educational content, career development content. And I think more educational content like that is forthcoming. You're going to see a transition in the way we deliver educational content away from large freestanding educational programs and short snippets that will come on your phone uh, in a slide or two with voiceover from the person that created that or published that paper or wrote that guideline. And uh, what I think is that the members will appreciate quick bites of educational content that's very convenient for them and meets their needs. I'm eager to hear people's feedback constant change. It's going to be an exciting year.
1: Well, Andrew, thank you very much for the summary. We look forward to another great year. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East